So our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the the first couple of chapters of Matthew uh, during the Christmas season uh, this year. You can find that printed for you in your bulletins. One of my favorite things growing up when my family would go to Auburn football games was to be able to, to, to get the program. Now, those of you who went to a college football game, you love to get the program because it's just packed full of information about your team. And as a 12-year-old boy, I could just sit and read that for days because it's got the list of who has the passing records and the rushing records and the receiving records and the kicking records and just all the information you could ever dream of looking at. And then they would have their bowl records and their championships and their records against other teams. And I always loved to look at that because it had records back to, you know, the the late 1800s. And you'd see, well, here's our record against Alabama and here's our record against Georgia and here's our record against Vanderbilt. And why are we 6-12 and against Vanderbilt? What, that's an odd thing. And why did we play Spartanburg Methodist in 1900? I don't think we did. But stuff like that's in there as you look back at these old football records. And the thing about those is, is you can't really edit those. Like, you can, you can claim national championships from 1905 to, you know, who knows. But you can't go back and, and change whether you won or lost, although you might want to sometimes. But you can't edit your, your win-loss record. It is what it is there are resumes we do edit we can't edit those football resumes but we do people are known to edit their work resumes from time to time right like somebody gets caught in this every so often yeah I had a doctorate from Harvard no actually you really didn't or I was the vice president of development for Apple for 12 no you actually never owned a computer and and people get caught sometimes in these lies on their resumes In Jesus' day, a genealogy was kind of like a resume. Uh, They were not as as individualistic as we are as a culture. And so your family tree really mattered. And the people in your family tree really mattered. Uh, It's said, and I guess it's true, that, that King Herod actually had his public family record expunged. Like he took certain people out of it. It's like, I don't I don't want people to know that I'm related to them and maybe you want to do that sometimes too but but this what we have before us is this genealogy of jesus it's what matthew starts his whole book with the genealogy of jesus and it's obvious as you go through this that matthew hasn't included everybody that he could in genus jesus's genealogy that he's edited it in some ways is he doing that to make Jesus look better? Well, as you read this, you'll see, no, that's not the case, because there's some pretty interesting characters in this genealogy. And so we're going to look at this. We're not going to look at every single name. Don't, don't worry. Don't get scared. I know this is kind of a scary topic to, to think about on Sunday morning. How long is he going to keep us here? There's actually an Advent devotional that goes through every one of the names in this genealogy, if you want to buy that. I'm not doing that for you. But what we're going to do is look at this genealogy and kind of ask the question, well, what use is this to me? With everything going on in the world and everything going on in my life today, what in the world can a list of names of really, a list of names of dead people, how can that help me at all? Okay, so let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And... uh, 
Please don't hold my pronunciation of these names against me. Here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abi somebody. And that dude was the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Nice job. Thank you. You think I'll get on Sports Center for that? No, not at all. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven. Um, Help us with this text that's before us. You've included it uh, in your scriptures for us, and we're to be edified by it. Uh, So I pray that that would happen now by your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So so what do we do with this genealogy? We're we're not going to break it down name by name. What do we do with this genealogy? There's, There's three big takeaways I want us to get from this. That Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of sinners. The son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of sinners. First of all, he was the son of David. Part of the point of this genealogy, and even the way it's all arranged, is to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. His human ancestors are the kings of Israel. And specifically, he's called the son of King David. Now, and and you probably know this, the the people of Israel were longing for a deliverer to come and to bring them out from under the Roman oppression that they were living under. A king who, in the words of Psalm 2, which we read for our call to worship, would subdue the kings of the earth. Uh, They were looking for the son of David who was promised in 2 Samuel 7, whose throne was going to be established forever. So they're looking for this kind of son of David to come. Uh, In addition to calling Jesus the son of David, Matthew calls him the Christ. And the Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. 
Uh, There were lots of people who were anointed for specific purposes in the Old Testament. But specifically, priests and kings were anointed for their offices. And Messiah, or Christ, the anointed one, had come to represent the king who was going to come and liberate God's people. And restore and heal God's people. So when Matthew here links son of David and the Christ... He's doubly emphasizing to the people, Jesus is the one you've been looking for. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Now, why would a Jewish person of Jesus' day need to have that emphasized? That Jesus was the son of David. That Jesus was the Messiah. Well, it's because Jesus, when he came, he didn't do exactly what they expected this son of David, this Messiah to come and do. There are ways in which he met their expectations. They expected him to come healing people and he did that. He healed the the deaf and the lame uh, and the blind and and you read about people coming up to him and saying, son of David have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on my daughter. Heal her. She's been possessed by a demon. Help her. So there were ways in which Jesus met their expectations for a the Messiah, but in other ways he didn't meet their expectations at all. He didn't lead a rebellion against the Romans. He didn't really seem that interested in politics. He didn't try to have himself installed as the king. And then none of that happened. In fact, he was actually crucified by the Romans. And so it, it might leave you, if you were a Jewish person, considering the, the claims of Jesus, well, what kind of Messiah is this? I mean, what good is a crucified Messiah? This really hasn't helped at all. Matthew and and the rest of Scripture makes the case that Jesus is a Messiah who's come with bigger things in mind. He's come fighting a a bigger battle. He's come to pull off a greater deliverance. Uh, Later in this chapter, and we'll look at this next week, verse 21, Matthew tells us that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. He's come to defeat the greatest enemy, which is death. He's come to to come and to die and to rise from the dead and then to ascend into heaven and He will one day return again and make all things new. And this is what Jesus has come to do. This is the Messiah. And Matthew's saying, this is the one that you were looking for. Uh, You and I live kind of in this time between... Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And we need to be reminded as well that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one to be expected. He is the one that we are looking for. Because while we see lives changed by the gospel, this world that we live in is still broken in it. Like he hasn't made all things new yet. We walk by faith and not by sight. There are, there are things that happen in our lives and in the world around us that we don't understand and that we hate and that we deal with on a daily basis and that are hard for us. And so while sometimes it may feel like, yeah, Jesus, man, Jesus has come through for me. He has, he has blessed me in such a great way. There are other times where he seems, he seems strangely absent from our lives. And he, he doesn't seem to be doing much of anything. And we wonder why we may not say it out loud, but 
inside we wonder, what, what kind of Messiah is this? What kind of Messiah is this? Is, is he really doing me any good? Uh, one of the, the interesting aspects, I think, of the Harry Potter series is the relationship between Harry and, and Dumbledore. And because Dumbledore is always asking Harry to take on these great risks, uh, and he, he doesn't explain why he has to do it or explain everything he needs to do, and Harry has to figure things out, and he has to make sacrifices, and it's just really hard for him. He doesn't understand. But through it all, he has to learn to trust Dumbledore, that, that Dumbledore is a great wizard, and he's a good wizard, and he loves Harry, and he has his best interests at heart. When Jesus allows these things into our lives that we don't understand, when our prayers aren't answered the way we wanted them to be answered, we have to remind ourselves, he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And he came to deliver me from sin and death. And he died for me. And he rose for me. And he loves me. And I may not understand anything that he's up to right now. But I've got to trust him. I've got to trust him that this is who he is, the son of David. Uh, Secondly, Jesus is the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis you find in the early chapters that you're at this spot where it seems like the knowledge of God is about to disappear from the face of the earth. And it's being preserved in one family line. It's the family line of Abraham. But even Abraham's family have have gone over to idol worship. And then God, in, in Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham and out of his sheer mercy calls Abraham to himself. Not for anything Abraham has done, but simply out of his grace. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And in your offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. The the entire earth is going to be blessed through your offspring. Paul then, in Galatians chapter 4, looks back at this, and he says, ultimately, this promise to Abraham was pointing to an offspring and offspring singular It was pointing to the one who would come. It was pointing to Jesus Christ. So that Jesus then is the way in which blessing comes to all the earth. So it's not just that Jesus was a son of Abraham. Jesus was the son of Abraham. He's the one through whom blessing comes, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and to the nations as well. And you think about it, that's how Matthew's gospel ends, right? With Jesus sending the disciples out to go and accomplish that task of blessing the nations by taking the gospel to them. Jesus will bless not just the Jews, but the Gentiles and all the earth. Uh, It's interesting in that light that Matthew, in this genealogy, highlights some some non-Jews in Jesus' family tree. Ruth was a Moabite. Uh, Rahab was a Canaanite. Uh, And you know, the the Jews looked down on the Gentiles and they regarded them as unclean. And Matthew shows us 
that Jesus came to bring these very Gentiles into the family of God. That Jesus came to make outsiders insiders. Now, let me ask you, who do you, who do you think I was an outsider? Who do, you, who do you think are kind of the, like those people? Who are the, who are the outsiders to you? Uh, is it people of different political views? People of different races? People of different socioeconomic levels? People with a different level of education? Who are the, who are the outsiders to you? See, when, when you're inside, like most of us are, when you're inside a religious community... It's easy to separate the world into the insiders and the outsiders. It's easy to separate the world into the us and them, the good guys and the bad guys, the moral and the immoral. But the scriptures continually show us that if we're in God's family, if we're in God's community, it's not because we're the good guys, it's because God has been gracious to us. It's because God has rescued us by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're in not by merit, but we're actually in by grace. Um, one of the, I, don't, I guess it's, it's too early for this right now, but one of the oddest parts of the, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special, the claymation one, you guys know which one I'm talking about? Kind of like from 1969 or whatever they play every year, is the whole Island of Misfit Toys angle, right? Like, how did that get into the story of Christmas so, so Rudolph, you know, he's got the red nose and everybody's making fun of him. And so he, he runs off and he, he finds this island of misfit toys. And on the island of misfit toys, uh, there are, there's like this jack-in-the-box that doesn't really work. Um, and what was, what was the other thing that, that was there? The, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, there's slinkies that don't slink, right? Um, <laughs> Like if they made it today, there would be an Xbox that didn't work right or something. Uh, and it seemed like there was like this big creepy doll with like one eye that ran around. I can't remember, but I was traumatized as a child. But there's this, there's this island of misfit toys and, and Rudolph finds shelter there. He finds refuge. Y'all, that's what the church is meant to be. Alright? I know we all, we all try to look our best and be our best and be on our best behavior. But the, the church is an island of misfit toys. Think about who Jesus pursued in his ministry. He pursued people on the margins of society. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. Uh, he came and he healed the lame and the blind and the, and the deaf. He loved, he loved people who found themselves kind of on the outside ring of society looking in. And he came to bring blessing to them. He came to bring blessing to the nations and to the outsiders among the nations. And he came to bring those outsiders in to the family of God. So let me, let me say this. If, if, if you're here and you feel like an outsider, if you feel like you're not as put together as other people. There, there are a few more skeletons in your closet. You're, you're pretty sure about that. There's just more rough edges about you. Or maybe it's just that you're not as funny, you're not as successful, you're not as smart, not, not as whatever. And you feel like an outsider. The church is supposed to be a place where you're welcome and you're loved and you're valued 
simply because you're made in the very image of God. And, and you need to know that. And let me say, too, if you don't feel like an outsider, if you don't feel like you're on the margins, maybe you are competent and talented and successful, and, and, and that's great. Be careful to remember that you're in God's family by grace and not by competence. You're in God's family by grace and not by competence. And be careful that you don't start thinking that the mission of the church is to collect a bunch of competent and well put together people to form a kind of moral social club. Because that's, that's not what it's about. The mission of the church is to take the gospel to the nations, to take the gospel to the outsiders, and to bring them in to the family of God. Jesus was the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham, the one through whom blessing goes to the nations. And now as we are connected to him, blessing is intended to go from us to the nations as well. Where are you with that? With that whole idea? Where are you with that? Are are, are you asking yourself, how has God equipped me to bless the people around me? What places has God put me where I can be a blessing? What places has God put me where I can actually specifically bless people who are on the margins? People who are on the outside looking in. Well, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then finally he's the son of sinners. Now, told you this is an interesting genealogy of the women who are listed here Tamar played the role of a prostitute Rahab was a prostitute Bathsheba had an affair with King David of the kings who are listed here even the good kings that are listed are flawed kings Jehoshaphat made alliances with wicked men. Hezekiah and Uzziah did things they shouldn't have because their pride became too great. And so you've got good kings who are largely faithful, but but they're flawed. And then you have also on this list just flat out wicked kings as well. Ahaz practiced human sacrifice. Manasseh, it was said, he, he was worse than all the people that the Israelites drove out of Canaan. And that's Jesus' family tree. And that's the people that Matthew saw fit to list. Now, yeah, as we'll see next week, Jesus was born of a virgin to ensure, and that was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit to ensure that he was born without sin. And he's not tainted by sin, nor did he sin. But look at his family tree. Look at the people in his family tree. There are some pretty messed up people in his family tree. Now, why wouldn't Matthew edit some of them out? Like, if you're trying to make Jesus this great, glorious king who has come, why well, don't let's scrub? I don't, Manasseh doesn't need to be in here. I, I think we could get rid of him. Why does he do that? I think perhaps it's to drive home that verse 21, which again we're going to look at more next week. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. His people, Matthew is saying, were messed up. And Jesus came to save them from their sins. Uh, I just finished watching 
Bloodlines on Netflix, and I'm really going to give this away, so if I'm, I'm just sorry. You don't need to watch it anyway. Pass the... Like, I'll say this. The first season, if you can't figure out what's about to happen at the end of the first season, you probably shouldn't watch television because you're not good at it. Um, and, then, and then after the first season, like, it's terrible, so don't watch it. But anyway, it's basically the story of this family who... They live in the Florida Keys or somewhere in thereabouts... They've got this beautiful resort hotel that they run. They have this picture-perfect life. But the story is basically about how the sins of the parents trickle down into the lives of the children. When the kids were younger, and this gets flashed back to you all the time, when the kids were younger, mom and dad were having a fight. One or both of them had had an affair. Things are not good in the house. The youngest daughter is getting yelled at. One of the daughters is getting yelled at. And so to get her out of the emotional chaos of the house, the older brother, Danny, takes her out on the boat, even though he's not supposed to go out on the boat without an adult. So he takes her out on the boat, and she, there's an accident, and she drowns. He comes back. The dad is enraged and just beats the mess out of his son. I mean, just kicks him and beats him. It's, it's horrible. But the family, instead of turning him in when the police come, they all lie about it. They've been instructed, and so they lie, and and the dad gets off, and the family is intact. But Danny's life, the guy who got beat, his life just screwed up from that point on. And he's in and out of trouble, he's in and out of jail, he's in and out of addiction, but eventually he comes back home, uh, and as is expected, things begin to go poorly. And eventually... The older, the, his younger brother kills him in a in a fit of rage, and they all and they all cover it up. The whole family covers it up, okay. And then his Danny's son that they didn't knew existed shows up, and John, the one who killed him, is just he's tormented by his guilt. He's tormented by the fact that his brother's son has now showed up, and he starts kind of hallucinating and having these visions where the guy he kills talking to him. Uh, and he's saying, you, you got to tell my son what really happened. He's like, I, that's not going to do any good. i, I, I got to get rid of this guilt, but that's not going to help him. There's no need for me to, to tell him that. And he's, just, he, he's, he's overwhelmed with his own guilt. He's overwhelmed with how messed up his whole family is and that he can't do anything to fix it. And then Danny in this vision finally says to him, you need to tell him what happened. Because if you tell him what happened... It will finally change the family. If you tell him what happened, it will change the family. And what he's saying is, this family is so messed up, and we're always covering everything up, and we're always lying about it, and nobody will own their own sin. And as long as we keep doing that, it's never going to get changed. It's always going to be like this. But if you'll own it, if you'll own it, it'll change the family. Do you see what Jesus' family tree was like? Jesus came to change the family. Jesus came to change the family. And He changes the family not by owning His own sin, but He changes the family by owning the sin of the family. He looks at how messed up we are. And He owns that Himself. He owns that and He takes the consequences for us, for that. 
in order to change the family. Uh, the Bible makes a big deal about David's sin and David's murder and David's adultery. And then it makes a big deal about his confession and his forgiveness. How was it that God was able to forgive David for that? I mean, David had to own his own sin, yeah, but, but somebody else had to own David's sin for him to actually be forgiven. Jesus did. Jesus owned what David had done. He owned David's sin on the cross and said, treat me like an adulterer. Treat me like a murderer. I'm going to own his sin so that he can be forgiven. Do we, with all the mess in our own lives, with all the mess in our own families, is there any hope that we can change? Is there any hope that our families can change? Yes, because Jesus came from a messed up family of sinners in order to save sinners. How can that apply to me? How can, how can I be forgiven? There's one more, and I'll do some quickly. There's one more scene in Bloodlines where the matriarch of the family, she's just kind of been overwhelmed by how messed up their family is. And she goes to this priest to confess her sins. And she says, she says, how can I be forgiven? And he says, you confess to me and God forgives you. And she's kind of, she's like, it's that, it's that simple? Is that all? I just name my sins to you and then you're kind of this agent who grants me forgiveness? And that's right and that's wrong. Anything can be forgiven. But the forgiveness of sins is not some transaction where we go to a priest and we say, here's what I did, and he says, you're forgiven. And that's all that's involved in it. Our sins can only be forgiven if somebody owns our sins. And somebody takes the consequences for our sins. If someone bears the weight of our sin, if someone takes the hit for us, and that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus came to own our sins so that our sins would no longer own us. Jesus came to own our sins so that our sins would no longer own us. And that's where our hope is this morning. That Jesus is the Son of David. He is the Messiah and I can trust Him. Jesus is the Son of Abraham who is going to bring blessing to the nations. And Jesus is the Son of sinners who came without sin to own our sins so that our sins would no longer own us. Do you have that hope? This morning is offered to you in the gospel. Uh, come to Jesus uh, and receive him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for sending Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of sinners, your son, uh, into the world to rescue us from our sin. Uh, God, help us to see this and to believe this and to rest in this and to be changed by this. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.